0: Well, good morning, everyone. If you could go ahead and turn to the book of John, John chapter 7. If you need a Bible and uh, didn't happen to bring yours in, feel free to raise your hand and we'll be glad to provide you one for the day. John chapter 7. And today we're going to be covering a quite a lengthy section. Uh, John chapter 7, verses 25 through 37. So to kind of put us all back on the same page as we're going through book, the book of John, there's a lot of storyline, there's a lot of narrative, so sometimes when we teach through passages like this, it's good to do a recap of what went on last time we were together. So if you kind of just, just skim over verses 14 through 24, we don't have an hour to go into it like last time, uh, but we find that, what well, even going back earlier into chapter 7 there, that it was time for the Feast of the Booths, the Feast of the Tabernacles, either one of them, they're used interchangeably, through the Bible. This is one of the three required feasts that a male from every Jewish household at least had to come back to Jerusalem and partake in. It was a seven-day feast. They, built, they brought with them temporary shelters. As we recall, it was kind of like uh, camping out. It was kind of like putting tents together. and It was supposed to be almost like a reenactment of when God brought them out of Egypt and they lived in temporary shelters. So this was a required feast, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Jesus did not go on the day of, first day of the festival, we find out. Uh, everyone else did, and the Jewish authorities had stopped looking for him at that point. Jesus, surprisingly, shows up in the middle of the feast. The Jewish authorities did not want him there at all, and were ready to arrest him to keep him from coming in, but he makes his way all the way in secretly to the inner part of Jerusalem, All the way to the temple and begins to teach. And of course, we find that the Pharisees, the Sadducees did not like this at all. Uh, The people are are talking amongst themselves still. You see lots of, we'll see some today, confusion on who this is. Is he the Christ? In chapter 5, chapter 6, we looked at a lot of that too, right? They say he's the king, he's the rabbi, he's the prophet. And then Jesus starts saying, I'm the bread from heaven and i am come from God, and they're like, no, that's okay, you're no one, we're leaving. All right, they, they don't accept him for who he is, and they're always trying to define Jesus who they want him to be. We find the same thing happening here today. Uh, we also saw last week when the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, Sadducees, were seeing Jesus teaching, uh, they even accused him of having a demon, which is fascinating, right, because actually... We looked, and who is the father of the Pharisees? It's not God, it's Satan. And Jesus literally told them, your father is Satan. It is not God. And they continually claimed to be of Moses. They continually claimed to be of Abraham. They were dressed in all their nice clothing and representing the religion uh, and the holiness of God, supposedly. But they were not. They were following Satan. They were taking people away from God. God had sent the one and only Savior that would ever save anyone from their sins, Jesus Christ, God and man. God the flesh incarnate, God incarnate. There he is, the Christ, the Messiah, who would live, who would die, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, atone for sins for all who believe in him. And yet, you have the, the temple, the Sadducees, pulling people away from that Christ and saying he's of the devil. So, very interesting, All right, Now, let's move on to where we're at today. We kind of pick up right where we left off. Jesus is still... There at this big festival, this big feast, there are ton, supposedly more people came on this feast than any feast. It was so popular. Everyone liked to camp out in tents, I guess, all right? But they all would come back there, lots of people around. Look at verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will find not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For providing salvation through Jesus Christ. That we, we fully acknowledge that we are sinners, that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. And that we deserve the judgment, we deserve the wrath, we deserve the curse that sin, the punishment for sin rightly deserves in the presence of a holy God. We thank you for giving us grace, giving us mercy in the form of not that we deserve it, but in the form of Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life that we could not live. He takes our sin on himself on the cross. Pays for that sin, we get his righteousness, and we have done nothing in and of ourselves to acquire it. We thank you, God, for loving us, for saving us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Help us to bask in that glory of what he has done for us more and more, even as we read through these passages today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's look back at verse 25 through 26. Uh, Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? All right, so last time we were were looking there at the beginning of chapter 7, we find out the people were discussing these things amongst themselves, but due to fear of the Jews, they would not say them out loud. So it's still this muttering, this mumbling, this kind of talking amongst themselves about who is this, but they feared the Jews enough. And then later we're going to find out in the book of John, they feared the Jews uh, because they could be removed, excommunicated, we might call it, kicked out of their synagogues, and they would have no access to the temple system. They could be removed from the Jewish system of worship. So they were, with fear of the Jews, they, uh, they would stay quiet, and it would affect them in every single way. Even in Acts, we find out, Uh, Those who claimed that Jesus was the Christ and believed in him to be the Christ, they suffered for that, right? Many of their possessions were taken, homes were taken. They had to leave Jerusalem because the persecution got so severe from the Jewish authorities. So even now, if someone says that Jesus is the Christ, we're finding out that they are getting persecuted, they are getting punishment for such a thing. And the same holds true in many places and, and even here where we live today, people do not like to hear the truth about who Jesus Christ is. Sometimes, yet that gospel is the only way that people can be saved. So we must get it out. Now, uh, you, you see that they're wanting to arrest. We saw they're wanting to arrest Jesus. Here, the people are kind of like they're still debating: Is this the Christ? Is this him? Then how is he here? If they wanted to arrest him, how is he allowed to be here? And he's teaching. And we find from chapter 7 and chapter 8, he's teaching for a long time. And no one is getting to him. No one is making that arrest. So then they're like, well, maybe they know he is the Christ now. So they're allowing him. They permitted him to teach. So all these things are kind of going on in the crowd. John is recording them for us here. Verse 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. And again, we have more confusion here in verse 27 about the Christ, so there was a wrong way of interpreting Scripture at the time. It's, it's common throughout church history. You'll, you'll find some poor interpretations. This is a poor interpretation of Malachi chapter three verse one. All right, Malachi chapter three. You're dealing with uh, you know Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. The last prophecies in the Old Testament. After this, God uh, shuts off. There are no more prophecies that come, and the New Testament opens up with the fulfillment of the prophecies of Malachi being fulfilled with the uh, the messenger coming to announce the Messiah and the Messiah coming. Uh, so Malachi, the last prophecies, uh, they deal with the messenger that's going to come and the Messiah that is going to come. But this verse, so, some of them were taking, uh, taking wrongly. Malachi 3.1 says this, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So apparently there was a a quickness, a suddenness here that they thought no one would know where the Christ had come from, that he would just suddenly appear out of nowhere. And that was a a wrong interpretation again, but that's where you're picking up some of this in verse 27. But we know where this man comes from, When the Christ appears. No one will know where he comes from. But... If you recall just a little bit of, of your, your Bible, you probably recall that, wait a minute, I think we do know where the Messiah comes from, right? And if you go to Matthew chapter 2, turn over there with me, Matthew chapter 2, verse 1 through 6, that th- this is established, and we, we know where the Messiah is coming from, and we know that God had already spoken through the prophets to announce where the Messiah would be born. In Matthew chapter 2, 1 through 6, uh, we see it's pretty easy to find this information out. Uh, It's uh, regarding the birth of Jesus. Look at verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For he saw his star when it rose and came to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Look at verse 5. It's not, there's no doubt. They simply say, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. And there we have it in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for... From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So long story short, verse 27, back in John, we see this mix-up that's happening, and uh, it should not be. But Part of this could be the lack of clear teaching now, that the, the scribes and the teachers, are they don't want Jesus to be the Christ, so they're trying to put more and more doubt in the people's minds. It could be something like that. But, but either way, the, the teachers of the law there at the t- temple are not answering the people. Is this the Christ? Is this not the Christ? In fact, they have to not even talk about such a thing. Now, uh, look at verse 28. Let's continue on in John chapter 7. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So here again, you have the people are willing to acknowledge Jesus as a human being, and and that's but that's not saving, right? That's not enough. We looked at last week the there in early early in chapter seven. The brothers of Jesus believed in Jesus, that he is a person. He he is their brother. But they were unwilling to see that he was sent from God, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Christ, that he was God the Son incarnate. Later, they do. When he rises from the dead, they believe. And they're counted in that early 120 believers at the beginning of the book of Acts, right? But they did not at that time. But throughout the book of John, you see variations of belief in Jesus. They never doubt that he is a person, all right? Sometimes today, people say, well, I believe that Jesus was a real historical person and try to count that as, as okay, yeah, I, b- I believe in him and that's enough uh, for salvation. That That's not enough. Uh, the Pharisees that killed him believed him to be a person. The chief priests that wanted him dead believed him to be a person. The people that are trying to arrest him believe that he is a person. That's not enough. It's an insufficient definition of Jesus Christ. Here, they're acknowledging, like that he's saying, you know me, and you know where I come from, this is true. But, but is that enough? A, no, it's not enough. Look at there at verse 29. I know him, speaking of God the Father, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they will accept him, and think of all the miracles he's performed at this point. John only records a handful, just enough to make the point, most likely because John was aware of the synoptic gospels where more where miracles are recorded. But Jesus performed so many miracles, there should be no doubt that they, they should know who he is. Even John the Baptist, who was the Elijah-type figure, dressed in deer skin, leather belt, eating honey and locusts, right? All this is, is, is fulfillment of the prophecies that the messenger would come to announce the Messiah. The messenger has come, the signs, the miracles, the wonders. No one is doing these things. They should all be looking at him. This, this has to be. Like, people cannot do these things naturally. It is only supernaturally that they can do them. So God is stamping his approval, validating him, authenticating the message of Jesus Christ. But instead, they still do not want to believe all that Jesus is. And, and it's amazing when you think about it. They're they're trying to arrest God in the flesh. Like it's, just, it's, it's dumbfounding to think about. They do... They perfectly loved their religion without God. Their religion was just fine until God interfered with their religion. It was like, we have all this down, everything is just right, then God shows up, messes it all up, right? And all that they're doing is supposedly in the name of God. They're they're doing this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, right? It is required by the law of God, and they are honoring this, All of the people are also performing their religious rites, and they are there, and Jesus is teaching. They know he's performing signs, miracles, and wonders. They know John the Baptist has come and announced him, yet they are still trying to in any way put doubt, give doubt that this is not who he truly claims to be. Uh, But what we find is religious duties, uh, performing religious duties then or now does not put you right with God, all right? And we see a lot of religious duties happening in this this era, in this chapter especially. Look at verse 30, John chapter 7. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. So John lets us know here, obviously, the the Jews are still wanting him arrested. He has snuck past their guards at the gates of Jerusalem. Uh, Everyone had come in. They must have let their guards off duty now Jesus is teaching right there in front of him. They want to arrest him. No one can arrest him. Inability. They cannot. Why can they not? Because it's God's timing. God is in control. And he will not be arrested until he is wanting to be arrested. Uh, John 12. Just flip a couple of pages in the book of John. Look at verse 27 through 28. Here we have. This hour mentioned again that John talks about. And look, compared to verse 30. Let me read verse 30 before I get over here to John chapter 12. 7.30 says this, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now fast forward six months, and you come to John chapter 12, 27 through 28. The other festival, the other required feast is happening, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Climactical point is the Passover, and Jesus is going to be put to death as the Passover lamb our Passover lamb. And look what he says as he prays here in verse 27. It says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then he willingly gives himself over to be arrested, falsely accused, beaten, whipped, crowned a thorns, stripped, mocked, ridiculed, and put to death. Why? Because the hour God's perfect timing had come. He was untouchable, unarrestable, until that hour was going to come. So, if we find his hour had not yet come, they could not arrest him. Go back to John chapter 7. Let's look at verse 31. And here you have again a mix. You, there's constant mixture amongst the group of who they think Jesus is and, and what they want to believe about Jesus. You have many of them rejecting him as the Christ, because, oh, we know where he's from. So that he can't be the Christ, right? Uh, then here in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So here we find most likely, and, and again, when when John uses the word believed in him, you have to look at the context. How are they believing in him? But he at least says here, they acknowledged that he actually was the Christ. And they believed in him as the Christ. And this is huge. This is tremendous. You have the Old Testament that's constantly talking about and prophets talking about God sending them word to describe the Messiah, the Christ that is to come. And many are rejecting him even though he's come. Yet these people say, this is him. And they looked to the signs and saw them rightly that God had authenticated him, had approved of him, this is the Christ. And if you look back at the Old Testament, I mentioned this many times, but you don't see supernatural signs constantly on every page accompanying every single prophet of God, every single person of God. You have him seldomly uh, putting his full approval, supernatural signs and wonders upon a person As new revelation comes, like there with Moses, the three signs he gives to Moses to go back and show that he has now been sent by God. Jesus comes and performs countless, innumerable signs. And so these people, these many, or they're in the crowd, some of them said, will the Christ perform more signs than this? I mean, he has performed more signs than the whole Old Testament combined. It's like this has to be the Christ." So it was a good deduction, all right and and we see anytime we mention this, it 's good to remember that sometimes we think Christ is the last name of jesus so it 's like uh, there 's Jesus, of course he 's the christ it 's his last name right that 's not the case so Christ is a is a title it is that prophesied position of the anointed one that was to come, and multiple times in the book of John we found where they knew the Messiah was coming and they were on the lookout for him. Turn back to John 1, verse 40 through 41. Just take a quick note of the early calling of the disciples. And look here in verse 40 and 41. One of the two who heard John, John the Baptist, speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. And then in parentheses, you have, which means Christ. All right? And if we think of even the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, uh, she was telling Jesus, who is the Christ, well, when the Christ comes, he will explain all these things to us. And Jesus says, I am he. You're, you're in the presence of the Christ right now. So there was this... this uh, anticipation they were looking they were aware that God was going to send the Christ so some of the people that day at the temple were disregarding him putting up question marks and doubts and then some believed yes this must be the actual Christ uh, let's look at John seven 32. we'll keep moving through John 7 The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priest and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And here you have something interesting. You have the Pharisees, uh, which we know a lot more about, but the chief priests were actually the other religious party of the day, the Sadducees. And it's kind of like, you don't want to do an exact on this, all right, but it's kind of like Democrats and Republicans, all right? And for them to come together and work on something together is like, like, it's not common, right? <laughs> they don't see eye to eye on things. But so it was with Sadducees and Pharisees. They were very opposed to one another. They had their own scribes. They each had their own teachers. They disagreed theologically on certain matters, and there was a great divide. All the chief priests at this time were Sadducees. The other party were the Pharisees. But here, look, you have both of them ...coming together because they both recognize Jesus as their enemy. They've got the whole religion thing worked out. The last thing they need is God. All right? So here you have the chief priests and the Pharisees joining together to have him arrested. But we found out later in, the, in chapter 7 that the guards cannot touch him. They are mesmerized by his teaching. And instead of arresting him, they stop in their tracks and they're listening... And they'd go back and say, no one has ever taught like this before. And the guards tell that to the Jewish temple authorities, which they don't like hearing that either. Look at verse 33 through 36. Then Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and when, then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go through the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Uh, what does he mean by saying you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. All right, so the, here you have the Jews. They're attempting to arrest him. They're rejecting his teaching. And the Jewish authorities now have officially rejected Jesus as the Christ. They are in the position of power and authority and they can approve or disapprove all things religious. They have now disapproved of him, and they think he's leaving. He says he's leaving. He's going somewhere. Where is he going? Well, it can't be here. We have ran him out of town. He must be going to the dispersion. This happened when the, with the Assyrians and the Babylonians invaded and spread out the Jews all into the Gentile areas. He will have to go far away into the Gentile territories where there are some dispersion Jews out there. Maybe that's where he is going to go because we have officially rejected him. All right. Uh, Is this what Jesus has in mind when he says, I'll be with you a little longer. And then I'm going to him who sent me. No. Uh, What does Jesus have in mind? Where was Jesus soon to go? The Jewish authorities would not go. He's going into the presence of God, the father. He is going into heaven. He tells them, I'm going back to the one who sent me. Now, this is this is where he is going, are the Jewish authorities going there, the ones who are in charge of the temple, the ones who are dressed so awesomely, white, pristine robes that are sitting in the seat of Moses that claim to be of their father Abraham, that are the uh, in, 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 they're, they're, those enforcers of the law that are calling everyone out, are they going to the Heavenly Father as well? And we look and see, they are not. Jesus says, you are not going to be able to find me where I am. You cannot come. They are not going to go there at all. So Jesus, six months from now, will be making that journey. He will. They will put him to death. He will die. They will look for his body. They will not find his body. Why? Because he has been risen from the dead. He is going back to his heavenly father. They are not going there. So it's fascinating, again, when you think about this, those in charge of that religion were not going to go to heaven. They were they, they were the great enforcers of the religion, the great enforcers, supposedly, of the law, but they were not going to where Jesus was going in the presence of God the Father. Uh, will others? Uh, absolutely, right? Uh, John 14, look over there with me, verses 1 through 3. Jesus comforts his disciples... In the in completely polar opposite of how he spoke to the Jewish authorities. He tells them, You will come to me and you will be with me. They were they were distraught that Jesus was leaving. They unlike the Jews who thought, Oh, he's going away, finally, this is good news. Jesus tells the disciples he's going away, and they are distraught. But look what he says in verse one to his disciples Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you today are in one of these categories that we've just looked at. You are either can receive the comfort from John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, that Wow, we have no, there should be no trouble, no despair in our heart. We have eternal life. We've been rescued from our sins. The price of sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. He has gone to prepare a place for us, for you. If Christ is your savior, he will come again and will take you to himself. That where Jesus is, you may be also. You're either in that category Or you're over here with the Jewish authorities just casting doubt on who Jesus is, more and more doubt on who he is, not believing, perhaps looking religious on the outside to others, but yet you're not going to be in heaven. You're not going to be where Jesus is. That's all of mankind. You're in one of these two categories here. So hopefully you receive comfort from John 14 today. But if not, and you're here today or listening and uh, you don't know, where you will go because you're not going to be here that much longer to tell you the truth 50 years 40 years 100 years whatever it is you think you're going to get to but uh, where are you going to be right we you have eternal life or you have eternal damnation It is one or the other and Jesus Christ is the only way to the father so he he does not let the Jewish authorities take comfort in their position before God Jesus is going back to the one who sent him that is God the father his disciples, though, He gives them great comfort. I will per- come for you. I am building a place for you. I am going to take you to where I am. Beautiful comfort that, that He gives to them, and we receive that as believers as well. Look at John seven Let's continue on. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now, this is really interesting when you're reading through, the, through John chapter 7. You're, you're reading as we have been, just verse by verse. We're reading through, and you get to verse 30, 34, verse 35, and then all of a sudden you get to verse 37, and it's just this, this, this loud, uh, emphatic, it seems, in verse 37, that Jesus actually stands up. So most, of, most teaching was done by rabbis sitting down, But all of a sudden here in verse 37, uh, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So why would Jesus stand up and cry out such an perhaps unusual thing to us as we're reading the text? What does drinking, uh, the feast of tabernacles, the feast of booths and Jesus have to do with one another? So we're going to try to start connecting some of those dots here, okay? Because the Feast of Tabernacles, even, and even for us today as modern Christians, perhaps you've never even heard of these feasts. You're like, what in the world is he talking about these feasts? These were so a part of the Jewish culture. It was mandatory. It was required. And, and as we'll get to, into more next week, you see all of them fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the, even the timing and the hour, right? All these things are to be done exactly as God had planned, God, that God had sent Jesus uh, here on the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, where mankind would come back and tabernacle with God. He sent Jesus, God in the flesh, tabernacling with man to the Feast of Tabernacles. All right, So we have Jesus Christ there. All these things are pointing to Jesus, but there's also a theme of the Feast of Tabernacles where they recall and they talk about what had happened before. So first, turn over to Exodus 17. Let's look at Exodus 17, verse 1 through 6. And I want to recall your attention back to uh, the Jews when they were wandering and they needed to drink. They needed water. And we're going to see that the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast, Feast of Booths, uh, was a time to recall the, the wanderings. They bring their tents, right? They put these shelters up wherever, and they, they live in them, and there's, they're talking, they're teaching their children about God saving them out of Egypt and the wanderings in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, the desert and all these different times where God intervened and helped them. And it's, It should be theological lessons. They're just right there, easy. And we find that that is what was happening at the Feast of Tabernacles. But let's look back at this one, all right? This would be one of the points that they would talk about. And here in a moment, we're going to look at Nehemiah and see, yes, that's what they were talking about during the Feast of Booths. But Exodus 17, 1 through 6. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped in at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, Here in this passage, again, we have what they would be talking about during the Feast of Booths, where God provided for them. They were thirsty, and not just just a a mild thirst. They're literally saying they are going to die. Their kids are going to die. Their livestock are going to die. There is no water. They have no water. It's around a million people. So most theologians estimate are now coming out. How on earth do you water a million people plus their livestock, right? So God says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to stand before this rock. I am going to be there. The Lord is going to be there, supernaturally providing water to come out of this rock. And in our minds, oftentimes we we imagine like a water fountain, and they go up to it and hit a button or something. It's just a little squirt coming out, all right? But most likely that's not the case. It would take a long time to to quench a million people plus their livestock. So we can imagine that there is a, a bountiful, as God would supply us, great sufficient amount of water that is coming from this rock to nourish everyone. And this is of God. It is supernatural so that the water is to come from this rock. Now, this, what happened there seems to be recalled at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now we don't have a lot of, we kind of we might call it the liturgy or what they talked about exactly during the feast of Tabernacles. But we know from Deuteronomy and from Numbers that they would recall what had happened, just kind of in brief, it's mentioned. But if you would look over at Nehemiah, we actually have a sneak peek at what they most likely continued to talk about, and here in Nehemiah, uh, just a. You have have the return right of the Jews. They've been in in captivity in Babylon. They go back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in shambles. The wall is in shambles, and they start rebuilding the wall. All that is happening. Uh, Nehemiah is involved in that. Ezra is involved in 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 that as well. But here in Nehemiah chapter eight and chapter nine, you have Ezra who is recalling these things. And look what happens. Let's see. Look at verse 13. Nehemiah 8, verse 13 through 16. They're going to read another little lengthy section of here because I want you to see how it's all pointing to what Christ is accomplishing. Uh, On the second day, the heads of the fathers of the houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had given. God commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in their all their towns and in Jerusalem go out to the hills bring branches of olive wild olive myrtle palm and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written so the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves each on his roof and in their courts and in their courts of the house of God and in the square of the water gate, in the square of the gate of Ephraim. All right, so that's happening there in chapter 8. Ezra has read the law, and they realize they've been in violation of the law of God. The law is one big unit package here, and this part is part of it that they have been violating. They have not been keeping the feast, and it is time. It's on God's calendar. It's, it's, It's scheduled. It is time for this feast. What should we do? We must honor this feast right now. Spread the word, town to town. Tell everybody, grab your temporary tents, bring them back here, and set up. Now, Nehemiah, I'm just going to read 9, 9 through 21. It's quite a large portion, but this is one of the longest, the longest talking we have about what was going on at the Feast of Booths. And I want you to look at how they recall all these great events. It's just, just rehearsing, rehearsing going back over all these things that God, how God had provided. Look at verse 9. Uh, this is what Ezra is saying. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. When you divided the sea before them, So they went through the midst of the sea on dry land and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters by a pillar of cloud. You led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses by your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for, from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give. So here you have just this crazy and great, awesome, condensed abbreviation of all those journeys, then they're recalling them before the people. Look what God has done. Thank God for what He has done. Look how He has taken care of us. Look how He has provided food. Look how He has provided water from a rock, right? Look how He has provided light at night for our fathers. Now continue on. Look at verse 16. You'll see some of this repeated. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. They stiffened their neck and appointed a leader ...to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way that which they should go. You gave your spirit, you gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. All right, so long story short, here in Nehemiah, you have the longest rendition of most likely what happened at the other Feast of Booths, Feast of Tabernacles as well. So when Jesus stands up, it's not out of the blue where he says, come to me, right? Look look back at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. So we find that this the drinking and the rock and the, the supernatural provision of water that God gave to Moses, gave to the Israelites when the Lord stood before the rock and provided water for his people. This was common. In fact, the, the Jewish historians say that for, for, for at least several hundred years, the, the water reenactment, there was a, a part of that going on at the temple every single day uh, regarding this. So it's, it's happening, it's being taught it's a visual lesson as well of what happened. They're recalling these things, God providing them. And then Jesus, on the last day, the great day, says, you've been looking over and over and over, right, at what has happened, but I stand before you today. Look at verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. This is, he he is, right, This is, again, another type, right? We've covered types. I'm going to review some of them next week. But this is a Christological type uh, person, an object or event that God uses or used to point towards a great fulfillment that was to come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ stands in front of the people and says, I am it. The water that you're looking back on, I am so much more than that. They had to drink the water or they were going to die, the people said. Uh, they were going to physically die. Uh, and we see it, types always go up. They don't go parallel. So Jesus doesn't turn himself into another water source right there. You drink water there from the rock or you would die. Uh, today you must supernaturally drink of me and he turns himself into water, right? It's not water, water. No, it's it's spiritual. Now you must believe in me or you will spiritually Die. I am the source of life, but not just life, eternal life. And you must drink of me. So we see that he is the typological fulfillment of that. And we've seen this many, many times as we go through the book of John. The first one comes to mind, right, is is John the Baptist. Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. Was Jesus a literal lamb? No. Did they use literal lambs in the Old Testament? Yes, they did. But that is pointing to greater work of Jesus Christ. So here, this entire feast is pointing towards something greater that Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, God incarnate is going to accomplish. Uh, this, he does the same thing with the thirst, with eating in John 6. Just turn over there quickly, John six thirty-one through 35. Lots there about the manna from heaven. We're just going to just just again kind of review that as he's talking to the people, you recall he had supernaturally fed somewhere around 20,000 people. Uh, they chase him down, not because they want to worship him, follow him, or believe in him in that capacity. They are just hungry and want more food. And uh, they say, hey, Moses gave our father's food for 40 years, and he was just, just Moses. Supposedly, if you are the prophet, the Christ... You'll give us way more food than that, maybe three meals a day, all right? And for, for 50, 60, 80, 90 years, we don't know. But look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So here you see again that the, the manna from heaven of the Old Testament was pointing to something greater. They wanted earthly comfort now. They wanted economical power. They wanted political power. They wanted their health, wealth, and prosperity right here and now. They wanted more food than Moses had provided. And Jesus says, no, I gave you one meal, but most importantly, that is supposed to look to something greater. I am what you must eat of for eternal life. I am the one you must drink of to have your thirst quenched for all of eternity and they're, they're pointing higher right so you see that he is the substance he is the real rock that provided the water he is the real manna from heaven that must be eaten to have life and life eternal so what does all this have to do with us uh god has made it abundantly clear that jesus christ is the anointed one he is truly the christ from his birthplace to his life From John the Baptist, the supernatural signs, miracles and wonders, the prophecies being fulfilled, the types being fulfilled. It's just arrow after arrow after arrow saying this is the Christ. This is the anointed one. This is the one that I have sent. And we see the people over and over not wanting to believe and constantly trying to cast doubt so they don't have to believe in him. Now, we take great Joy and seeing how all of this points to Christ and is fulfilled in him. And we take of him. We believe in him. And today, if you have believed in Jesus Christ as your savior, then you have, as verse 37 says, you have thirsted and you've come to Jesus Christ and you have drank. And it is a permanent quenching that your soul, you have been regenerated. Uh, you are on your way to heaven. You can be comforted by the words of John 14 that Jesus goes to prepare a place for you. He is coming back to bring you to where he is at. But if you are here today and you have rejected Jesus, and like those Jews just putting doubt and doubt and doubt out there so you don't have to believe, there is no comfort in these things. And there will you will not thirst. You, you will not have your thirst, thirst quenched. You have not eaten of the manna from heaven. What does that mean? When Moses' day, if you didn't drink, you would die. If you didn't eat the manna, you would die. What does it look like now? You have the manna from heaven, the rock from heaven has come, and if you don't believe in him, you will spiritually die for all of eternity. So Jesus is teaching heavy lessons here, and he's showing all of this, even the Feast of Tabernacle, the rock, the man, it's all pointing to him. What should you do? Come, drink, believe in Jesus as the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for providing such clarity in your word that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the manna from heaven that you have sent that we must eat of to have eternal life. He is the fountain of water, the rock, the source that we must drink of to have eternal life. God, we acknowledge that Jesus is indeed the Christ, he is God incarnate, born in Bethlehem, but God the Son for all of eternity, who lived, who died, who rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, will be the final judge over all mankind. And also, Lord, He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to You except through Him. We thank You for the great salvation that You have provided. And God, we pray at the same time, if there's anyone listening today who has not had the manna, who has not drunk of the Son, who has not believed in him for eternal life. God, may they see their sin, may they see that the, their desperate need for a Savior, and believe in him today. In Jesus' name we pray.